Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. You can buy a tiny quadcopter to support Diffusion from www.diffusionradio.com support for $50 including shipping. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Brainwaves for Alzheimer's and part two of Ben Eggleton talking about photonics and the International Year of Light. But first up, here's the news. Artful robots get away with crime. In Switzerland... The London-based art group Mediengruppe Bitnik programmed the random darknet shopper to go onto a black market website called Agora, which is cryptographically hidden from Google by use of Tor, the onion router. The random darknet shopper randomly ordered from a menu of over 17,000 items for sale, using an allowance of 100 euros of Bitcoin every week for three months until January 11, 2015. The items it ordered were delivered to the gallery exhibit, where they were displayed along with their packaging as part of the artwork. It was titled The Darknet, From Memes to Onion Land, An Exploration. The work was also blogged and tweeted as the items were ordered, delivered and opened. The gallery is next door to a police station. The artist's lawyers told them that Swiss law holds that art in the public interest is free from legal impediment. The performance artwork was intended to explore the philosophical and ethical implications of online black markets. How is trust built between people who've never met who are buying and selling dodgy goods with no regulation? They found that not a single one of the 12 items that the robot ordered turned out to be a scam, and all but one arrived safely. One seller was unable to deliver the ordered handbag, but he simply refunded the Bitcoin. Agora used Amazon and eBay-style seller ratings to generate trust. The first item to arrive was a set of Fire Brigade Master Keys from the UK. The seller, going by the name World, said they would gain access to communal areas and storage rooms and would be useful for the toolbox. It sounds like a set of skeleton keys. The keys cost 0.13 Bitcoin, which is around 38 Australian dollars or 29 US dollars at today's conversion rate. Then there were a pair of replica diesel branded jeans, a can of Sprite lemonade that works as a secret stash box to hide things, 
a scan of a Hungarian passport, a complete set of the electronic versions of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, 10 packs of 20 Chesterfield blue cigarettes from the Ukraine, replica Nike sneakers, and a baseball cap with a discreet built-in camera, a Visa Platinum credit card, and 10 yellow tablets of ecstasy. These were delivered inside a foil bag, inside a DVD cover, so they would fool an X-ray scan. On the 12th of January, the day after the three-month exhibition closed, the police moved to seize the whole exhibition. The robot was impounded. It was very civilised of them to wait until the exhibition was over. The police stated that they acted to protect third parties from the ecstasy pills. The artists complained that the police were interfering unjustly in the freedom of art, which is protected by Swiss law. The gallery supported them, and the artists released a statement that they are convinced that it is an objective of art to shed light on the fringes of society and to pose fundamental contemporary questions. After three months, the robot was released, along with all of the ordered items except for the ecstasy. The police tested the pills and found them to contain genuine MDMA, so they destroyed them. They did, however, return the drug packaging. The Swiss courts made an order of withdrawal of prosecution. The artists were off the hook. The public prosecutor stated that the possession of ecstasy was indeed a reasonable means for the purpose of sparking a public debate about questions related to the exhibition. The public prosecution also asserts that the overweighing interest in the question raised by the artwork Random Darknet Shopper justified the exhibition of the drugs as artefacts, even if the exhibition does hold a small risk of endangerment of third parties through the drugs exhibited. Previously, the collective have hacked London Underground CCTV cameras and invited the operators to a game of chess. And in 2013, they posted a video camera with a GPS tracking device looking out through a hole in the package, to Julian Assange inside the Ecuadorian embassy. The camera live-tweeted its progress on its journey all the way until it reached the hands of Assange himself. I can't wait to see what they do next. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Professor Ben Eggleton from the University of Sydney is Director of QDOS, an ARC Centre for Excellence in Photonics. He'll be speaking on June the 12th at Trinity Grammar School in Summer Hill where I will be moderating questions from the audience and asking a few of my own. 2015 is the International Year of Light. I began by asking Ben about his recent soliton discovery. It's, it's subtle, it's subtle, but solitons are pulses that propagate in time through an optical fibre, for example, without changing shape. They were first discovered in a canal in Scotland 100 years ago, so in the context of a water wave propagating along a canal. And there was a realisation that the solitons are fundamental to all wave systems in nature. So water waves, waves in plasmas, 
and then in the 70s, the realization that waves of light propagating through dispersive media would form potentially solitons. In the 80s and the 90s, they were enormously important in the context of fiber communications as a means of propagating pulses of light over very long distances without the dispersive effects which basically rip these pulses apart. So rather than the pulses being ripped apart, they are retain their shape. And so you can send these pulses of light over very long distances. And obviously that's a very important. So we've been looking in kudos at the idea that we can harness solitons on the chip. So rather than propagating solitons over long distances. We are now in a regime where our solitons propagate over hundreds of microns as part of a photonic circuit, exploiting the exquisite properties of photonic crystals. These are nanostructured materials. So these solitons uh, propagate very slowly. We can slow the solitons down we can manipulate the soliton. So the discovery essentially reports a new class of soliton. A, we call it a pure cortic soliton. It doesn't mean anything, I think, to anyone. But it's a soliton that exists in a regime that has never been observed theoretically, experimentally. I mean, it's just surprising. My colleagues who have just picked up on the results are saying, surely this has been... Surely someone's thought about this. Surely this is such a breakthrough, such an interesting new sort of somehow it's got to be something out there, but it hasn't been considered before. And I must give credit to my team, a very, very talented postdoc, Dr. Andrea Blanco, who was working with me and she finished a PhD from Bilbao in Spain and has joined my group. Very, very impressive young researcher who will be presenting this in Munich. And it really is a discovery. And, you know, you don't really know the implications at this stage, I like to say as a bit of a slogan that we are discovering and harnessing new physics at the nanoscale, and we don't really know what the implications are going to be, but I think it's going to change the field in ways that uh, will be very exciting. And of course, you know, with the University of Sydney's investment in the Australian Institute of Nanoscience, um, which will be opening uh, later this year, this is a $150 million nanoscience building that will house state-of-the-art laboratories, clean rooms. We're really pivoted to take uh, these amazing ideas into the 21st century, and in particular, the investment in nanofabrication capabilities, establishing what is a state-of-the-art photonics foundry for micro-nanotechnology is going to allow us not only to make these exquisite devices, but to prototype them, to translate them uh, into some real-world applications. So really exciting time at the University of Sydney. I just want to quickly go back with the metamaterials. Uh, that's something I've followed a little bit. So metamaterials, amongst the properties they have, one of the things they, they have is a negative refractive index, which you don't yeah. find. Yeah, that's right. So the refractive index, the dielectric constant, is something that we come across in high school, and it relates to... Snell's law and refraction. So usually we think about how the lens works and light refracts at the glass interface because the glass has a refractive index of about 1.5. So refractive index usually is positive. What does it mean to have a negative index? Well, we didn't know until uh, metamaterials were first proposed by uh, Sir John Pendry in the context of the super lens where a metamaterial can indeed have a negative refractive index. And that's because you have the amazing situation where the permeability, the permittivity are quite 
uh, unique in these materials. So a negative refractive index turns optics upside down altogether. You can start to imagine optical systems that violate the all the basic rules of optics. So one of the basic rules of optics is how tightly you can focus light. So in the MENA material, you can, you're not limited. So you can focus light down to an infinitely small spot. And what does that translate to? Well, all sorts of applications that are tremendously important. So people have imagined in the context of micro nanolithography, which is the basis of how you actually fabricate microelectronic circuits that are the backbone of the computer industry. If you can focus light down to a smaller spot size, then you can start to imagine smaller transistors, smaller circuits. You can scale Moore's law uh, for a number of decades. So yeah, negative refractive index is just uh, fascinating. You know, it's fair to say that metamaterials, it's still basic research. I mean, there ha have been some exciting applications uh, pointed out, and there have been some pretty impressive demonstrations, particularly in the microwave frequency regime. But in terms of optical waves, there are still some really big challenges. One of the, the big challenges with metamaterials that's well known is that, sure, you can modify the dielectric constant of the material, the refractive index, by doping the material with these metallic resonators. But what does metal do to light? It absorbs. So you tend to lose most of your light along the way. So the challenge is to find a, a regime where the metamaterial is providing this sort of unique optical property that you can harness, but it isn't lossy. Give you another example of, of work that uh, my group is uh, just about to report, but uh, we've been thinking very much about light at the nanoscale interacting with sound at the nanoscale. So it turns out that in optical fibers, in the waveguide chips that we deal with, not only are there optical waves, but there are acoustic phonons that reside within the medium. And it turns out that the optical waves can actually excite the acoustic phonons. These are sound waves that propagate at the speed of sound, but have a frequency of gigahertz. So these are not the same sound waves that you're hearing right now, because the sound waves that you're hearing are at 50 hertz, 100 hertz, kilohertz maybe. We're talking about gigahertz acoustic phonons that are guided in these uh, circuits. So we can interact light with sound. And that interaction offers some pretty amazing uh, optical functionality. So on the one hand, we can harness that interaction to realize some very novel um, RF technology for applications in microwaves. And so we're harnessing the interaction between light and these gigahertz acoustic phonons to manipulate an RF signal. We're building a prototype. We're funded by the US Air Force um, Office of Research to build a prototype that will be tested later this year at Dayton, the US Air Force uh, Research Laboratory. On the other hand, we can start to imagine the concept of a phonon laser. So, wow, what's that? We normally think about a light laser, um, light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. Well, there is a phonon laser, which is essentially the same idea uh, for acoustic phonons. And therefore you can start to imagine coherent sources of monochromatic 
acoustic phonons at frequencies that are gigahertz, and that's going to transform a number of areas of, of technology, as well as being just absolutely fascinating. The physics is, is just absolutely intriguing, but we can start to imagine a number of applications where we can now use the source of phonons to do essentially um, what we're doing already in the health sciences, to probe uh, tissue blood to measure the properties of the eye with sound waves, these acoustic sound waves that are now gigahertz. So really, you know, one of the new paradigms is, is, is emerging paradigms is, is this light and sound. In fact, we're organising a workshop uh, in Sydney in July. We love our acronyms. It's called Wombat, the workshop on optomechanics and Williwan scattering applications and technology. So a bit of jargon there, but essentially we're looking at light, sound in nanoscale structures, how we can understand these systems, describe them, and how we can harness the interaction between light and sound at the nanoscale. And you know, finally, let me just say I'll be giving a lecture on Friday the 12th of June at Trinity Grammar in Sydney, talking about uh, my career and the International Year of Light and what light technologies have done for society and looking forward to the future, uh, thinking about what we're doing at the University of Sydney and talking to the students in particular about careers in science. So hoping to excite some of the kids, some of the amazing kids at this school and other schools in Sydney about uh, science technology and, and what a career path in research might look like and whether you want to follow my example or not, but uh, what it means to do science at university, what is a PhD all about and what's happening in science. And, you know, that should be very exciting and it'll be an amazing year. So please Google International Year of Light, find out what's going on Get in contact with us at the University of Sydney and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Well, Ben Eagleton, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Ben Eagleton from Sydney University talking about the physics of light. Come along on this Friday, June 12th, to hear Ben speak at Trinity Grammar School in Summerhill. I'll be moderating the questions, so come up and say hello. And finally, another presenter from the FameLab New South Wales Heat. FameLab is a competition for public communication of science by early career researchers run every year by the British Council. The British Council is an international organisation promoting education in the arts and sciences. The judges for the New South Wales State Heat of the Competition were Helen O'Neill, the Country Director of the British Council Australia, Dr Angela Crean from the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences where she studies non-genetic inheritance, parental effects, sperm quality and plasticity. And Rose Hiscock, Director of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. They judged on the values of good science, persuasive communication and style. The host of the night was the surfing scientist and star of ABC TV's Catalyst, Ruben Meerman. Our next speaker is from the University of Western Sydney. Uh, it's Miss Genevieve Steiner, and she's speaking to us uh, about whether or not our brainwaves can help us cure Alzheimer's disease. Please welcome Genevieve. Thank you. Did you know that in the next 35 years, almost one million Australians are going to be suffering from dementia, unless we find a cure or some way to prevent it? Now, what if I told you that the technology which might just help us find a way to prevent Alzheimer's disease, the most common cause of dementia, was actually invented in the 1920s? I'm talking about the electroencephalograph, or EEG, which was invented by a German neurologist named Hans Berger in 1924. 
Nowadays, the EEG is a non-invasive, even a portable, and incredibly cheap tool to measure the electrical activity of our brains. You might have seen an EEG done before, perhaps in the movies or maybe on TV, or maybe one of your friends or family or yourself have had one done if you visited a neurologist. But basically, what we do is we take our super stylish swimming cap, complete with electrode and wire accessories, fit it onto a person's head, and then we measure the electrical activity that's produced by the neurons in their brain when they communicate with each other. Now, we can use EEG to measure the different cognitive processes, such as learning and memory, and also the way that we pay attention to things. Now, as you might know, in Alzheimer's disease, memory is one of the very big problems. And if any of you know somebody that's had Alzheimer's disease, in the very early stages, people tend to forget very simple things, like maybe where they've left their keys, or perhaps how to do a task that they've done multiple times before. But there's also a problem in a very specific system in the brain called working memory. Now, working memory we rely on in everyday life. To give you an example, let's just pretend that you worked in a shop and I came in and I wanted to buy an apple from you for 25 cents and I handed you a $20 note. You'd have to remember $20, 25 cents, apple. Okay, that's 1975 change. That's you using your working memory, holding online information in your mind whilst you manipulate it. Now, what we found using EEG is that there's this systematic pattern over time in our brain waves that occurs when we're using our working memory. It's almost like when the different neurons connecting the different parts of the brain talk to each other, they're all firing in synchrony like an orchestra. This has really important implications for people with Alzheimer's disease. Because by the time you start to show impairments in your behaviour, so forgetting where you've put your keys or how to calculate change, there's already been so much damage done to the brain. But what if we could detect these changes in the, to the, in the brain years before they even start to show up in our behaviour? What if we could do that using cheap EEG with our measure of working memory? This would be a whole new ballgame for treatment development. We might even be able to screen people at risk of developing the disease. And that is how, using Huntsberger's primitive and somewhat stylish technology from the 1920s, we might just be able to stop Alzheimer's disease in its tracks. Thank you. OK, I come from the arts. When I see that cap, it reminds me, for instance, on the set of Happy Feet, they wear a very similar cap all over the body with the same sort of things there, and the signals are picked up from their movement and fed into the CGI for animation. Um, just in your presentation, how much do you feel like a performer putting on that cap sort of in common with the dancers in Happy Feet. Tell us about the performance skills you're using there. I've never actually seen Happy Feet. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, the to? Penguin movie. Yeah. yeah, I've never seen Happy Feet. But um, yeah, definitely I do feel like a little bit of possibly um, a triathlon swimmer or something like that. Maybe something more than a dancer and more of an athlete. But um, yeah, definitely I, um, I think that the cap, it's a bit awkward when you're using it in research because it's not as nice to put on as just a nice dry cap on your head like this. We use an electrode gel that we have to insert into the little electrodes to actually conduct the signal from the person's scalp into the system. So you end up looking really messy and unglamorous when you've finished having an EEG done. So maybe it's not as nice as, as dancing or, or swimming or something like that. 
Um, as, a, as a museum director with a collection of applied arts and sciences, we, we, we of course uh, collect objects such as an AEG. Tell me what you've done to adapt the original sort of slightly um, macabre instrument to be a more modern uh, piece of technology and, and then how you tested that yeah, through, through trial. Yeah, of course. So um, uh, nowadays it's, we're really lucky. In research, um, you can buy these packages from, from manufacturers. They're very nice. The amplifiers compared to what Hans Berger would have used, which were these archaic, macabre, like you suggested, pieces of machinery. They almost look like giant old fridges. <laughs> His lab looked like a torture chamber. Nowadays it's this tiny little head box that we call it. It's an amplifier and you plug it into com your computer and that's it. Um, but the cool thing is about EEG is that it's one of those things, because it is so cheap, we don't just plug people into a system and make them sit there and do work. We can put portable caps on them and have them move around in real life doing tasks in real time. I was telling somebody here earlier tonight, <clears throat> there's even been these really cool inventions. You might have heard of neurofeedback, which is basically, it's like brain training, yeah? Kids with ADHD do it all the time. They've created these, um, these little souvenirs people can buy and they're rabbit ears and they have an EEG fitted to them, a little electrode sensor. And so when they detect that you're paying attention, the ears stand up very bright. <laughs> but when you're feeling sad or you're not really paying attention, you're falling asleep, they go down. <laughs> so yeah, there's some pretty cool things that you can do nowadays. Yeah, I'm just wondering where the original idea came from. It's obviously a really commonly used apparatus. What made you think to use it in a different way? Well, I think um, my research has been in basic research originally, and um, I think that it's not using it in a different way. It was more to just explore a similar question from a different angle. So I think that the work that I've been doing, it's primarily been using this really sort of typical type of task that everyone's always thought that you get these patterns in the brainwaves that are related to your expectations about the task and the sequence that's going to come up in the t different stimuli that you're responding to. But we had this bright idea in, in the lab I work in that, well, maybe it's not actually just the way that you're expecting things. Maybe it's how you're processing it and storing it in memory and holding it there, getting it ready for the next task. So we've tested that in healthy adults. We're about to take that into people that are suffering from um, early stages of Alzheimer's disease called mild cognitive impairment, and then hopefully into Alzheimer's disease as well. So yeah, it's really exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you. That was Genevieve Steiner from the University of Western Sydney talking at the FameLab New South Wales Heat about whether our brainwaves can help us cure Alzheimer's disease. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. 
Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for photos and links about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.